People don't like change. I don't like it. You probably don't either. But you know what? We better get used to it because it happens all the time. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And on today's program, we're going to talk about why, since you can't stop it, you better learn how to embrace it. Because whether we instigate it ourselves or it just happens, handling change, coping with change, adjusting to change is very often the key to how happy we are with life itself. And you're about to hear from some people who struggled with change, who kept putting it off and who stepped right into it. Bill, change is the wave that we ride to success. We don't only have to embrace it. We've got to leverage it. We've got to use it. We've got to take advantage of it. And this is going to be a fascinating comparison because as different as their stories are, the results are basically the same. Their ability to accept it, their willingness to do so changed each of their lives for the better. You're going to hear from a college swimming sensation who got out of the pool for 40 years and wait till you hear what happened when she decided to dive back in. And you'll meet eight-time Olympic medalist Apollo Anton Ono. Remember him, the speed skater? He'll talk about what it was like having to hang up his skates and find a whole new life for himself. And of course, you remember the TV show Green Acres. We'll find out what What happened when Tamar Haspel traded her ritzy Manhattan apartment for life on a farm where she challenged herself to only eat what she raised? Ordinary people living extraordinary lives. It's time for Growing Boulder. If you really want to eat right for yourself or for your family, do you have to grow your own? I'm Bill Schaefer. This is Growing Bolder, and right now we're going to boldly grow where you've probably never gone before. We're going to talk to someone who tried it, who went from an apartment in New York City to two acres in the woods to see if she could grow vegetables, forage for mushrooms, and even hunt for her own meat. How did it go? Well, it was pretty interesting to say the least. Let's say hi to Washington Post columnist and author of the book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard, Tamar Haspel. Tamar, how are you? I'm great, Bill. How are you? Well, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm fascinated with what you did. And you even came up with a term to kind of define things that really helped me understand what the book was about. So help us by talking about this concept of firsthand food. So when my husband and I left New York and we went to Cape Cod, I'm a food writer. So I started looking around and saying, okay, well, what can we do on Cape Cod that we couldn't do in New York? And the answer was lots of things. And it started with a garden, and then we built a chicken coop, and then we raised turkeys, and one thing led to another. And there was a commonality to all of them because, and I ask people this all the time, if you've ever grown your own produce or caught your own fish, does that food feel different to you from other food? And the answer is always yes, it does feel different. It's compelling in a way that that food you buy in the grocery store isn't. But there was no name for the category. But it seemed to me that there should be because they all had that same power. And so my husband and I started calling it firsthand food because you get dirty doing it. 
And from there, we sort of branched off to try and find every way that we could get it. Oh, I, I think that term makes, uh, you know, really blink, brings it into clarity. And that's that's a, one of the many original things in this book. But I do have to point out an area where I feel it was just blatant plagiarism because this story sounded so familiar to me. And I, I wasn't sure where or what I was thinking. And I was flipping the TV and there it was. Dun, 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 dun. Green Acres. <laughs> this is the same plot for Green Acres. And it's funny because, like, I, I didn't watch a lot of TV when I was a kid. Not It doesn't redound to my credit. My parents sneered at us until we turned it off. But even I remember Green Acres. And there's definitely something <laughs> that we have in common. And and for the most part, my husband and I both had Eddie Alpert's enthusiasm. But I had my Times Square moments, you know, where it was looking awfully good. And we still have a soft spot for the city. But, yeah, I totally get Ava Gabor's take on this. Look, you're a city girl. And, you know, I, I did not grow up anywhere near or in the woods. And I, I, I think even to us, there is some kind of an innate thing. I don't know, a primal DNA or something. Uh, you kind of lived the way all humans used to live and that today none of us do. Yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable, actually. And that was one of the things that ended up being interesting to me was that, you know, our our sort of collective sense of what food is has moved away from plants and animals as we moved away from plants and animals. And it sort of gravitated toward boxes and bags. And once you go back outside and start doing these things that humans have been doing since there were humans. I mean, we have this primordial need to feed ourselves. And when you do it, it scratches this, this deep-seated itch. It's a it's a very sort of reptilian satisfaction. Um, and it does, I think, reacquaint us with the plants and animals that are the foods that humans thrive on. You know, we kind of reacquaint us with the essence of who we are. You know, we're so different these days, aren't we? I mean, the, the skills that we seem to have are like, we're, they're all skills of the mind. All we do in life mm -hmm. is we think. We don't, we don't know how to do. We don't know how to do anything, how to, how to make, how to feed ourselves. How lost did you feel at first? And after a while, did you almost feel like, hey, yeah, uh, this is what I'm meant to do? I'm so glad you asked that because this is sort of the essence of it. When I lived in New York, I wrote about food, but I wrote about things that other people did. I wrote about studies that other people did. I wrote about meals that other people cooked. And when Kevin, my husband, and I moved to Cape Cod, I started doing, I put down the phone, I rolled up my sleeves, and I started doing things I had never done before. And it started really small. You you plant a garden. But then, you know, we built a chicken coop. I had no idea how to design a chicken coop. I didn't know how to use power tools. Fortunately, Kevin did. And I learned how gratifying it is to spend your time on the steep part of the learning curve. How, and especially, you know, in middle age, I was in my 40s when we started this. Um, and that's a time when your skills are, let's face it, deteriorating. And to be building them instead of watching them slip away at that time in life is is so buoying um, and and it makes you feel competent and strong. And I think strength begets strength. And so every time 
we did something, I was willing to tackle the next thing that might be just a little bit harder. And it was sort of a remarkable chain of events for me. You know, Tamara, I think you did this at the absolute perfect time and the perfect age, you know, 40s to 60s and 70s to, to still have new adventures, you know, to, to really choose wisely the things that are, that are in the back of your mind thinking that this is some great challenge I'd like to see. But, you know, letting your curiosity get the best of you. H- how, did, how did doing that, how did trying something so different, aside from what you've learned, uh, How did it change you as a person? So you use the word curiosity. And I think that's a really important one because like the first time we we got chickens um, and we got little chicks and they're really cute. You put them in a box and you keep them warm and you feed them. And of course, people have been doing this. Chickens were domesticated thousands of years ago. And but I'd never done it. And so, you know, when you see a kid who sees something new for the first time, whether it's, you know, an animal or a food um, or snow. And there's this wonder that they have. And you look at this kid and you think, God, it would be awesome to have that feeling again. And when you do things that you've never done before, you get to experience that. And, And I think that Doing that often, doing it a lot, which we have done over the years, it it is, it is, I know I keep using the same words, it's satisfying, it's compelling, it's interesting. And it has done a lot for me in terms of how I see myself. I've become competent. I have acquired skills that I never thought I would have. Um, it has changed me in some ways that are pretty fundamental. I love that answer. That's such a great answer because we can, we don't ever have to stop. We can always have that feeling that we did in childhood by discovering, and they can be the simplest things. Um, I take a little bit of a left turn here. I, I almost wonder what would happen if you would do a little experiment, sit somebody down at a desk, and on their left is an asparagus plant in a pot. And on the right, maybe put a a box of cereal and ask them which one is real food. They'll probably pick the box. Have we lost our sense of what food really is? We have because we don't have to procure it for ourselves. And that that is an unalloyed good. The fact that we're not doing subsistence agriculture anymore is a wonderful thing. It has freed us up to be doctors and engineers and writers. And we could never do that if we had to grow our own food. I am very pro-modernity. But it has distanced us from the things that we eat. And it has changed our very sense of what that is. And because in my day job, I write about food systems and and things like nutrition and agriculture, I come face to face when I hear from readers about some of the misconceptions that we have about our food system. And a lot of it is born from the fact that we're so distanced from it. And one of the things that surprised me most in this whole enterprise was when we raised turkeys, which of course, then you slaughter. um, Every time we've done that, we've had people want to participate in that day with us. They want to come, they want to experience because they want to get closer to the food that they eat 
And sometimes that means slaughtering an animal. And uh, and it always surprised me that people volunteered on those days to help us. How, how I, you know, I don't think I, I would not be one of those people. I mean, I'm one of those guys that I, I have to really muster something up in me to scold the dog at home. <laughs> how, how, how tough was it emotionally for you to, you know, to prepare a chicken or a turkey or you guys even hunted down deer? It was very hard. I didn't want to do it, but I decided that what was important to me in eating meat, and I've always eaten meat, was that the animal have a decent life and as quick and painless a death as we could provide for it. And the way that I can guarantee that was to raise it myself. And the only reason I wasn't going to do it is because I was a sniveling weenie. And I decided that's not what I wanted to be. And so I did step up and I did learn to slaughter the turkeys and I did learn to shoot a deer. Um, And it was hard. But because it was hard, it was satisfying. And to this day, if you ask me for a skill that I'm proud of, I mean, I've been a writer for 20 years. I've worked hard to do it to the best of my ability. But the skill I'm proudest of is that I can shoot and field dress and break down a deer. And I'm proud of it because it was so far out of my comfort zone and I had to push myself to do it. Wow. It's, it's the things that you went through. I mean, I, I can't even imagine opening my mind that much. And part of the reason is that especially today, you know, we're so disconnected from each other. We're, we're as polarized mm-hmm. as we've ever been. And you were surprised at how much firsthand food connects us, bonds us. Bill, I'm going to go full out kumbaya on you because food is this thing that we have in common. And when we uh, ventured into these different aspects of firsthand food, it connected us to different aspects of our community. We joined the Cape Cod Organic Gardeners. We joined the Osterville Anglers and we met gardeners and fishermen. When I took my hunter education class, I, I met other people who hunted. And, you know, When you meet somebody in those circumstances, you have a chance to establish this common ground because you're both doing the same activity. And the fact that you might be different religions, different political persuasions, different ideologies comes after that once you've already had a chance to establish a human bond. And we live in such a polarized society that any opportunity we have to connect with people, especially people who are different from us, I think is something we should latch on to. Another great thought and another great thing that came out of this. So what would you say? Was there an overriding message? What, what was the takeaway? What do you hope that if there's one thing we learn from what you went through, what, what do you hope that is? Fearlessness. I think that one of the things that people think about this is that it is super hard. and you know, I talked about some of the things that were difficult, but they were sort of emotionally difficult, not physically difficult. And because we've gotten so far away from food, the idea that you can actually grow it or procure it from the landscape around you is alien to people, but it's not rocket science. Roll up your sleeves, put down your phone, go outside and give it a shot. Um, it's, It's something that Anybody can do. You don't have to be an expert. Um, And good things happen. 
I love that. You know, it, it's it's exactly the best way to sum up because you don't need to be an expert. You don't have to have a big plot of land. You, you don't have to go off the grid to benefit from doing, from getting your hands dirty, from being invested in some way, as Tamar said, especially with the food we eat. And that is the message of the book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in your own backyard. Many thanks to Tamara Haspel for the conversation and definitely for the inspiration. Up next, speed skating legend Apollo Anton Ono. After you win eight Olympic medals, then what do you do? How do you find your path in life when you have no idea where to go? This is Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. all have in common is, man, we do not like change. The problem is change happens to us all the time. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And probably the biggest change we face is when our career comes to an end. Then what? That's true whether you're an ordinary person or the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympian of all time. Yep, that's who we've got now. He hasn't been in the Olympics since 2010, but I bet you know who I'm talking about. That's the impact that he had. Now he's making an impact by empowering you to make your changes the best they can be. It's all in his book, Hard Pivot, Embrace Change, Find Purpose, Show Up Fully. Let's welcome Apollo Anton Ono. Apollo, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, got to congratulate you. This is a pretty big year for you. You hit the big 4-0. Is that right? I, yeah, coming in May, I hit the big 4-0, which is it's uh it, it i'm very very happy and uh and it's actually amazing that my first olympics was literally 20 years ago uh, you know the time goes by in an instant doesn't it do you feel any different than you did then i feel like a, i feel like a complete different person to be honest with you i i you know i've gone through such kind of a transformation and and done so much work not only on myself but also in ways to kind of break free from the cycle of obsessiveness that I had when I was in the sport. And instead try to channel that in ways that is much more, uh, I think in, in a more holistic and, and positive environment. So I, I feel, I feel amazing. I'm deeply grateful and, and, and have that deep gratitude for the experiences that I've had throughout the Olympic games. And really now just trying to figure out the best way and path to help spread this message of reinvention transition an adaptation to uncertainty that enters into our life to the world and the people who, who need it most. So that's been my newfound purpose, so to speak. And it's been one that has been incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. And that's exactly why we thought you would be perfect for us at Growing Boulder, because what you went through, what you're going through, it really is the same thing that people go through when they retire or like go through a major lifestyle change, a divorce or loss of a loved one. Your book really isn't, it's not for aging athletes, it's for all of us. 
Yeah, the, the intentionality behind the book is exactly what you had mentioned. You know, all of us will face change either by force or by choice. And at which at that point, you know, life calls us to this new adventure, so to speak. And as we begin upon this new adventure and this new path, uh, it sometimes feels scary and uncertain. And we have been somewhat hardwired through our DNA to not want to go do those things that are unfamiliar in those environments or outside of our routine, because that blueprint gives us a safety and security affirmation that we, what we want and we desire. But we also know that to be constantly thrown out of the nest is to be fully alive and to live life uh, in a way that will help you adapt and perform well and, and grow. And we all seek progress. And so instead of shying away from change, we can choose instead to embrace it and embrace it in a way that gives us this catalyst to latch onto. And this catalyst can be metabolized in a variety of different ways. But that is the hard pivot, and either by force or by choice, it will happen. We will all face loss in some capacity in our life, and we will be faced with how to deal with that. There will be a mourning period. There will be an acceptance period. There will be a surrendering to the outcome period. And then from there, we can begin the process of actually transforming and transitioning beyond those steps. You know, it's a great way to look at life. And, and as, as you were talking, it, it struck me, too, that it's not only a career change or lifestyle change, but just the fact that you're turning 40 or when people turn 50, 60, 70, 80, when you have that birthday and you realize, my gosh, there's a different number, you know, there for me. I'm moving up in age. For a lot of people, man, it, it kind of knocks you off your axis. How do you look at age? You don't sound like you're afraid of it. I mean, you almost sound like you're excited about what's next. I embrace age, and I, and I, and I hope and pray that I'm becoming more wise and <laughs> making perhaps maybe less mistakes than I did in the previous decade. Um, I, I think, look, aging is a process in which it unfolds new beginnings in the same way, right? You, you, we've always thought that, like, oh, I'm just – I'm stuck doing the things that I've always done, but the reality is that you're you're always growing and adapting. And you know, as I turn 40 here in May, um, I look back on the life that I've lived so far, and it's been filled with incredible um, championship-like moments, and it's been filled with incredible hardships and failures at the same time. And that is what makes up a well-lived life. And hopefully, you know, I can live the next decade with as much intensity and passion and drive to help other people. Um, as I was gifted, as life had gifted to me during the first, uh, the last 20 years. So um, I'm on a mission. I'm kind of guessing, Apollo, that you really can't move forward until you let go of what you were. And how hard was that for you? Well, that, that, that's the most difficult challenge, I think, for most people is we, we stay married to this idea that our identity is what it has been in the past 10 years or 20 years of your career or life. And while there is some, some truth to that, I think the, the, the real overall reaching idea behind this book is that you will have many different facets of your personality, but it's up to you to go out there and polish those facets and make them shine. So your natural kid-like curiosity of play can be exhibited through a variety of different ways, but you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to go explore. You have to be willing to go try something new. And you have to be willing to understand that when you do do those new paths and careers, you're probably not going to be very good at them in the beginning. And that's okay. It's a part of the process. And that hardship is going to give you the resilience and and the know-how in order to navigate through these types of challenges. Uh, So 
it's all about perspective. I think it's, you know, we, we spend much of our life zoomed in to the smallest of details, and we forget that we're all still here on this, on this you know, floating rock through space. And so uh, we're here for a, a small, you know, second of a time in the entire galaxy, and uh, we just want to figure out the best way to live our best life. And I think that's the real intentionality behind the book. Man, it sure sounds like you're in a great place, uh, and I'm sure it hasn't been. It didn't just drop out of the sky for you. You learned this the hard way. One of the toughest, most important questions any of us have to ask ourselves, and I'll ask you personally, for you, Apollo, what is your what's next in life? You know, I, I had faced that what next many times uh, in my life in the past, About especially after I retired from sport, I trying to figure out what other skill sets that I had, if I was did I have any other purpose in my life outside of speed skating? And um, that what next now is how do I help others? Whether it's talking to new entrepreneurs and, and business founders and helping them navigate the challenges of starting a new business, um, giving them the support and resources accordingly, or it's helping other people navigate through the changes and challenges that life has thrown at them. And all of these things are within our own realities and perception of what's actually happening to us. And so, I have gone through those moments of darkness, so to speak, and I want to help others navigate through that in the same way. And uh, that's become my new purpose. Listen, folks, these are conversations all of us need to have, and we don't generally because you got to be vulnerable to do it and you got to have the right people in your life. But because of this book, all of those things can come to the forefront. He lays it out. He makes it easy. He takes the intimidation out of moving forward in life. The book is called Hard Pivot, Embrace Change, Find Purpose, and Show Up Fully. Apollo Ono, thanks for doing this with us and choosing to continue to be a difference maker and look for purpose in life. Coming up, more proof that it is never too late. You'll meet a woman who stopped doing what she loved for 40 years until she decided to attempt to come back. How did that go? You'll find out next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. I want to remind you that if you're interested in keys to healthy aging, and really that's all of us, right? Be sure to check out Mark Middleton's Fountain of Youth podcast. Interesting and inspiring stories on how staying active in your later years enhances your life. And Mark, you've got an excerpt for us to check out today. Yeah, there are really so many inspiring moments in the podcast, Bill, but I'd like to share one with you right now. It's the fascinating story of a woman by the name of Sue Barros Nesbitt. Uh, She was a college star in synchronized swimming. That's what we called it back then. Today it's called artistic swimming, but you know what it is. She stayed in the sport as a coach, but didn't swim, didn't compete for 
for 40 years until she decided to get back in the water and start competing again. Why did she do that? Well, let's let her explain in this conversation from Fountain of Youth. I was never off of synchronized swimming except for me doing it myself. I became a coach and an administrator after I retired. And after many, many years of coaching, I felt like two things. I felt like I'd lost touch with what it was like to be in the pool looking up and listening to a coach. And I wanted to see what that was like. And we use microphones that are underwater. And when an athlete is practicing, we can talk to them while they're also trying to perform their routine. And I wanted to know what that was like just as a normal person, not so much as an aging person. But as an aging person, I felt like my duty as I was retiring was to make sure I stayed physically and mentally fit. And I needed a motivation to do that. So by going back to being an artistic swimmer, I know once a year people will judge me in a bathing suit and watch my performance, and I wanted to always look the best I can. So that's my motivation as opposed to just having a gym membership and going and doing whatever the trainer says to do. I needed something where I was really being put on the spot. So number one was to see what it was like to be coached and what's that like, and then secondly, just to keep myself physically fit. You know, I love that, Sue, because we hear that from a lot of Masters athletes. Uh, when you do have a competition, when you've got a national championship, when you've got a world champ, when you just have a meet down the street that you want to enter, having something to focus on, having a moment when you have got to bring the best to that moment is really good in general for the aging process because it keeps you from declining at the rate that most of us think we have to. Have you felt that? Definitely. Also, all sports are wonderful. I think they all bring something to the table. For me, because I had a background in synchronized swimming, it was kind of a no-brainer that I jumped back into that. And again, I was still coaching, and I do still coach. So anything that can make me a better coach as well as an athlete is good. The interesting thing with synchronized swimming, and it's kind of a sad thing, is you really have to have a memory be able to retain your routine in your head so that you do it the same way every time. One of my first world championships that I attended as a master's athlete, I watched some of the competitive swimmers, the older gentlemen that were from 80 to 90, and I think there might have been a couple 90-year-olds. And I, I wished synchronized swimming was a little bit easier on the memory because those men and women could swim their event and there's somebody that will stop them if they've gone too far or let them know they have another couple of laps. Whereas with artistic swimming, there's nobody that can help you if you forget your routine. And as a soloist, it's kind of okay because you can ad lib a little bit, but it's when you're swimming with somebody else as a duet or a team that you need to be doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So for that challenge for me to remember my routines is a good skill. And since you've jumped back in, because now you said something I'm really interested in, because now I see synchronized swimming as having the potential to 
ensure, maintain cognitive development. So what if we started uh, adults uh, with very simple synchronized routines in their 30s and 40s? Uh, I guess it's kind of like dancing in the same way, remembering the steps. Uh, As you've gotten back in, has it helped you with your memory? I don't know. But I feel like aging is this. It's kind of a daily constant decline. And every day you need to do something so that you stay the same. I don't know that we can get better, although that's my goal. So it's just my my method of trying to maintain. I have no idea if my memory is better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I I think you're absolutely right about the fact that, you know, aging, the normal process is one of decline. But uh, the extent to which we've been led to believe that we have to decline, the the speed with which we decline is just so misrepresented that if you do the kind of stuff that you're doing, uh, you certainly can maybe not prevent the decline, but delay it by a a good bit. And, And certainly that's what we've seen. You know, I want to get back to, to, to your competition in a minute, but you mentioned the fact that, that you coached uh, for a while, and I, and I think you moved on far too quickly from that based upon what you have done because you coached the Canadian National Synchronized Swim Team. You were the Australian Olympic team coach that competed in, in L.A. in 1984 after the boycott, which was, I think, the first year that synchronized swimming was included. So you, you've been a big-time coach for many, many years. And when you said you wanted to get back in to see what it was like to be on the other end of coaching, I would think for a coach to be coached could be difficult. (laughs) Did you take to others coaching you really quickly or did you think now they don't know what they're doing? It depends on the coach. Uh, I recognize great coaches and seek them out, but occasionally you need to swim with somebody that, or swim for somebody that maybe does not know as much. And because educating people is a motivation to me, sharing my knowledge. So when I'm paired with a coach that maybe doesn't have the experience that I do, I do my best to help him or her do a little bit better job in organization or delivering corrections or whatever. But it's just um, most of my training is done by myself with an iPad on a tripod on the water and I do some skills and then I look at it. So I'm my worst critic. So um, that's what I do. So now you're you're retired from a full-time coaching gig, but I understand you still work on a freelance basis with athletes pretty much uh, of all ages. What is the range of athletes that you work with right now? I think the age is eight to about 80. <laughs> wow. Other than the challenge of, of trying to remember the, the routines that you mentioned that can be difficult for older people who have never done it, what would you say are the benefits of the sport in general for people of age? What can older adults get out of synchronized swimming? So many things. Number one, being in water is, of all the elements, fire, air, land, sea, water is so forgiving. There's no gravity in the water, and you have a natural buoyancy to stay up at the surface. So for me, if people have knee issues or shoulder issues, usually they feel a little bit better exercising in the water. We discuss the memory aspect. And the other thing about synchronized swimming is, depending on how you do it, it works every muscle and joint in the body. 
there's nothing that's left out. But I think synchronized swimming and working with people, it's an individual sport as well as a group sport. So you get uh, the community activity and just being in the water and trying to perfect something with a group of people is really fun, really fun. And I think it's good for you. A goal, obviously, Susan, in all sports is to be relaxed. We perform better when we're relaxed, where we're not too too tense. But But most sports, it's pretty easy to see and therefore easy to understand the strength and, and the stamina that's required. Artistic swimming is so beautiful. I mean, you guys are so graceful that many don't understand the strength, the power required. They have no idea what's going on underwater, even when we can see the underwater cameras. Uh, So tell us, what's it take to be good? What's it take to be really good? What's it take to be world-class in terms of overall strength and athletic ability? It takes everything. You need to be able to swim at a high heart rate, for a certain length of time, which is the length of your routine. So for me, my routines are between two and three minutes. So it's a short period of time. But you need to, during that period of time, be able to hold your breath. So having a good lung capacity and the ability to be underwater for a certain length of time, come up just for a couple of seconds, and then go back under and compete. So it's up and down a lot. in In my era, when I was competing, lifts and throws were brand new and very much at the infancy rate versus now. So master's athletes do some of the lifts and throws that the elite swimmers do, but not quite as much. But because we do have that factor, holding on to somebody's foot underwater and igbeatering, that's using your legs, get up to the surface, and then to hoist that athlete out of the water takes a tremendous amount of strength. So we need strength in everything, legs and arms. So I think it takes everything, best control, endurance, flexibility, strength. The flexibility part is you want your legs to look really long and straight. So being able to really extend the knee and we have pointed toes up in the air. So that flexibility through your ankles, your arm positions to make them beautiful in the water. Usually you need really good range of motion through your shoulders. What is the oldest age group now in in artistic swimming? Because we were there not long ago when a woman opened up the 100 and five to 109-year-old age group in track and field. I was there when the first guy opened up the 100 to 104-year-old age group in swimming. What, what's the oldest competitor right now in synchronized swimming? I don't know worldwide, but this last national championships in the U.S., there were quite a few more 80 to 89-year-olds in the competition, which was just great to see. I'm not sure I can make it that long, but I'm hoping to. <laughs> no, I, I think you're going to. And let, let me apologize right now to anybody from USA Artistic Swimming that has heard me call your sport synchronized swimming more than once. You know, I'm old school. I, I, I get that the name has changed, but I still refer to table tennis as ping pong. So um, <laughs> I, I apologize for that. It is USA Artistic Swimming. And, and let, let's wrap this up, Susan. I, I, you know, I know you've mentioned this already, but 
What is the moral of the story? You know, what's the takeaway? And I don't mean about sculling or egg beatering or lifts. I mean, what's the takeaway about life that, that, that we can learn from you and all that you've been through? We are all given a body and we're given a brain. And for us to be successful and a worthwhile person in society, we need to use our brain and continue to learn and stay up with things. But we also have a body that has arms and legs and a trunk and a head. And we need to work on keeping it functioning. We need to walk. We need to exercise. Because without one of those, we're not really living. If you don't have a brain that functions and you don't have a body that functions, that's not the way you want to go. So the most we can do is if we keep those two things, our brain and our body active and in good shape, then we're going to have a wonderful life. Boy, some great wisdom, some great advice from someone making her comeback in life, and it sure sounds like she's enjoying every minute of it. Sue Barrows-Nesbitt back in the pool competing after a 40-year layoff. You see, it really is never too late. So the question, folks, what is your Fountain of Youth story? Check out the Fountain of Youth podcast and get ready because it will change everything you thought you knew about aging. Look for it anywhere podcasts can be found. When we come back, it's On My Mind with Mark, and we'll tell you how joining a motorcycle gang can be a good thing. This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. My guards stood hard when abstract threats to noble Bill and Mark here talking about change on Growing Boulder. And one of the easiest ways to make a big change in your life is by joining a group. There's so many of them out there these days, groups of people who share similar interests, like certain activities, and who are looking for new adventures. Yeah, Amy Sweezy found a great one. She found a group in Miami, a motorcycle group, folks, who not only make a lot of noise, but they have a whole lot of fun. Most importantly, though, they honor sacrifices of the past by making a difference in their community today. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives come in all shapes, sizes, colors, genders, and ages. They are the people in our local communities making a difference. Sometimes they do that quietly, and sometimes they are really loud. The Miami chapter Buffalo Soldiers. Here we are here doing some maneuvers with our friends here. We're showing some of our skills. We want to ask some of the other chapters to show us what they got. With members all over the world, the Buffalo Soldiers Motorcycle Club bonds over bikes, friendship, and community. We are a family. We have 118 chapters. We have a chapter in Korea, Hawaii, and we've, we've all have come together. We have national meetings so that everybody can know everybody. At least try. So it is one big, giant 
family. We were actually founded based on the Buffalo Soldiers, the original Buffalo Soldiers, after the black, the first black uh, gentlemen were allowed into the U.S. Army. It's back in 1866. So these guys were cavalrymen, they rode horses, so that's why we ride our motorcycles, we call them iron horses. So uh, we were founded in honor of those gentlemen. The club is made up mainly of black riders, but open to everyone. Of course, loving to ride is a requirement to join, but their biggest joy comes from the charity work and mentoring programs. We also support a yearly scholarship, we do book bag drives, we help feed the uh, homeless. So we have a number of charity programs we do every year, and that's throughout the whole nation, not just our chapter. The best thing I've done with this group is probably feeding the homeless. You know, feeding the homeless, that's, I mean, that's phenomenal. The club was founded in 1993 by a retired Chicago police officer. Members are dedicated to riding and safety, but also motivating today's youth to be better citizens and leaders of tomorrow. Well, it's a, it's a, a family club, family-oriented. I mean, we're not goody-two-shoes, but it is family-oriented. Uh, a lot of the people in our club are policemen, military, professionals, so it's a kind of club that's kind of got some good ground rules in place for safety and for having fun. So it's a good set crowd for my age group. There's fun stuff for young people, and there's fun stuff for people our age. There's enough fun for everybody. You ever seen the Buffalo Soldiers in the road? You know, drive safe, look out for motorcycles, and if you see any of our events, please come and contribute. Great story. Really interesting people. The Buffalo Soldiers, they've got chapters all over the country. They call them Frontiers, the chapters, with eight active frontiers in Florida alone, all to honor the heroes of yesterday and to make a difference today. And what a great lead in that is for our next segment, On My Mind with Mark. Mark, have the Buffalo Soldiers inspired you to anything? (laughs) Uh, You know, I saw the story that Amy did, and, and it certainly did. But what's on my mind today, Bill, is... Uh, you know, really just what's happening here in the office, it changes minute by minute. And this morning in our staff meeting, uh, Jess, who is our community manager, asked for thoughts, uh, any ideas, suggestions for a question that she could ask on social media, because we do that on a regular basis. And, you know, I just threw something out there, um, suggested that she ask, have you successfully ever reconciled with anyone? And it's just turns out she's already posted it. And, you know, I'm curious about that. You don't seem to be the kind of guy, Bill, that would hold a grudge. But, you know, one of the things that we learn when we read interviews or we talk to people on their deathbeds is they regret things that they didn't say. They regret relationships that they didn't repair. And we always encourage people to do that. But there are few people in my life that I have no interest in reconciling with, and I'm not proud to say that, but, but I wonder, where are you in, in that? What do you think about reconciling? Do you have anybody you're estranged from? You know, my wife and I have this conversation all the time because in her family, she has siblings that, that really had expectations of each other. And when they didn't live up, when their responses didn't live up to those expectations, they just cut each other off and go their own way. I, I, I never had that happen in our family thank goodness not that it couldn't but it just seems to me it goes away if we're just more accepting you know if we let people be who they are and and let them live their lives and accept that 
I mean, I think some of that goes away, but I totally get how it happens. And once it does, that's a that's a once the concrete hardens on that wall, that's a tough one to tear down. You, you know, I, I've heard you say, and I mean this in the most loving sense. I've heard you say a lot of goofy stuff, Bill Schaefer, but I have never heard you say anything negative, uh, truly negative about anybody else. You know, we all laugh at times about different things that happen, but but I've never heard you say anything mean about somebody. I've never seen you react mean to, to somebody else. I, I just can't imagine you having uh, having to reconcile with anybody. Well, it, I, I think a lot of that is, um, you know, it, it, it comes from how you look at yourself and how you look at everything around you. You know, it, how many times do you hear people say, man, I wish I had more gratitude. I, I need to live with more appreciation and more gratitude. And I think I was always one of those people, Mark, and I'm not sure there are a lot of you out there just the same. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't really have any talents that stood out. I didn't have a rich parent or a business to to step into. So every step of the way, it's almost like I feel, wow, I'm sure lucky to have gotten to this point. I'm lucky to have gotten to that point. I was lucky to do this. So I think when you kind of feel like the underdog throughout your life, you kind of don't. You're, I'm not. No, nobody's ever disappointed me. I'm really lucky to be around the. And you're the same way. Yeah, you know, selfishly, I just don't want to. When it's all said and done, feel like I should have done something that I didn't. You know, I know there's a lot of therapy programs. Uh, you know, I, I think AA has one of these where you got to make amends with people. So, uh, you know, I, I guess that's just what I'm curious about. Uh, even if someone says no, I don't want to reconcile with you. I, I, I'm trying to think of people that I owe an apology to, so that I can make it before it's too late. Maybe selfishly as much as anything else. So, folks, whether you need to reconcile with somebody or not, go through life and be the best person you can be. And that way you leave nothing on the table and have nothing to worry about. That's Growing Boulder for this time. See you again soon. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road Using ideas as my maps We'll meet on edges soon, said I